Gosh, I'll first start by just saying it is so cool to see how God is growing and building this church. Isn't it amazing that we get to see how God, in his faithfulness, has done this? And you can also tell that Aslan is fully equipped to be our youth pastor because he basically used his one opportunity to make a first impression to tell you about grabbing his wife's butt. Um, so you can tell that he's very well suited for the work of the ministry. Um, all that said, it is cool. It's incredible to see the faithfulness of God's people and, and God's faithfulness through his people in this church as it grows and as it matures. Um, it is really exciting to get to see that. Over the last month, I've spent two separate weeks at the beach. Um, last week, I was in a beach in Texas. Yes, Texas has beaches. They're as nice as you would imagine them being. Um, there's a reason you don't hear about the Texas beach very often. Um, we were there last week with uh, Lauren's family. A few weeks earlier, we were there. With, uh, we were in uh, California with my family. And so we spent a lot of time at the beach. And uh, uh, let's just say, as a parent, I am so thankful for the invention of spray sunscreen. And if you're a parent, you know why. Because I think, like, if purgatory existed, what we would be doing the whole time is putting sunscreen on children. It is just the worst. Um, all that said, apart from sunscreen, it was a great time. And probably my favorite thing that we got to do at the beach, and, and one of the favorite things I got to experience as a father with my kids, is walking out into the ocean and just kind of fighting the waves. It's just kind of this, this amazing thing. Like, we're reminded that the ocean's a little dangerous, and we get to go and fight against it and do this. And I, and I get to see the joy of that in my kids, because that was one of my favorite things to do growing up whenever we'd go to the beach. Um, and it, what was really fun is actually as a parent to teach my kids how to handle waves. Because the truth is, waves can actually be dangerous. They can knock you over, and if you're not careful of the undertow and stuff like that, if you don't know how to handle them, they can be risky. So getting to watch my six-year-old and my five-year-old learn how to do this, and, and really I walked them through it in, in three basic ways. First off is never walk out further than you can stand. Particularly, for, especially for kids, don't really walk out further than your waist. But always be able to stand. Because if you can't stand and the waves come, it's going to be a lot harder for you to stand against them. Second thing, and, and this is particularly for my, for my younger son, Hayes, uh, he kept on like turning around and trying to go sideways against the waves. And I tell him, no, when a wave comes, you dive straight into it. That is the best way to not get knocked over by the wave is you just dive straight into it. So make sure you're standing on the ground. You can stand dive into the wave, and then the last one is just remember that there's another wave coming. Don't forget that there is another wave coming. And once you do that, once you remember that, you can have a great time, and for the most part, stay fairly safe doing a fairly dangerous thing. As I was doing this, and I was walking this through with the kids, and as I was thinking about the sermon, it kind of reminded me, I think, of, of the wisdom of that with what we're going to see played out in this passage. The truth is, there are waves that are constantly trying to knock over the church. There are waves that are consistent, always trying to knock us out, trying to drag us down, and, and, and push us away from the fitting of Christ. They're steady, they're consistent. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, talks about basically false doctrines and heresies like this. He says, don't be, don't be tossed to and fro by the waves and every wind of doctrine that you hear. And what we're going to look at today is what I think is one of the most consistent 
waves of false doctrine that, are, that is perpetually hitting the church, that is perpetually hitting us. And as we'll see, the same advice that I gave to my kids is what we'll have to employ as we face this. But what I want to start with, because this is probably the most important of them all, is what our steady footing should be as we look at what happens in what's called the Jerusalem Council in the church. And that is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There are a lot of prepositions, I know that, but they are very important. This is what keeps us from this wave of false doctrine that constantly hits against us. And that is the attempt to save ourselves. I want us to look real quick before we get into this at the very beginning of uh, chapter 15. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So we've seen this before. And basically, uh, this is what's happening, is we know in the scriptures that we can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves, but that doesn't keep us from trying. So we can't save ourselves, but that doesn't keep us from trying to. And this is what's happening here. Now, this isn't the first time that we've met what uh, later are called either the Judaizers or the circumcision party. This is a group of Jews who believed that for you to become a Christian, not only did you need the grace of God, not only did you need his calling and faith in the Holy Spirit, but that you had to be circumcised. Basically, that you had to become fully Jewish as well. This was not the majority teaching of the church, but there was a significant group within the church that were going and proclaiming this. And what they would do is after Paul would go to these churches and plant these churches, Paul and Barnabas would do that, they would kind of come in after them and stir up this dissension. And that's what this is referring to, that they're coming through and they're saying, I know you think that you're fully saved, but if you really want to be saved, you have to be circumcised too. And um, I love the way that they put it. Uh, Paul is much more heated about this and much more opinionated about this than it comes across in the text. And you can tell that from the letters that he writes, particularly in like the book of Galatians, for example. This very much so upsets Paul, and Paul is very opposed to this. But this is what they're trying to do. Basically, they're saying you have to partner with God in salvation, and that is through the law of Moses. And they're going through, and they're, they're, they're disseminating this throughout the churches. And this is really becomes a problem once Gentiles are brought into the faith. This is really when we start to see this. And they're doing this, and, and it shouldn't surprise us that this is a big ask for adults to become circumcised. But that's what they're doing, and they're saying you're not fully saved unless you can do that. And what, set, what this sets off, and what we'll look at here, is this, this actually becomes such a big problem that they call the first council of the church. This is not just a hangout time. This is the church leaders from all over what they knew as the church and, and the world at the time to gather together, to debate this, to pray, to seek God out in establishing this because this had become such a problem and caused such disunity within the church that it became clear that something needed to be clarified. And so this becomes a problem. 
But the thing is, and what we need to see, and what I want to make sure that we see, is that this is not a unique problem to that time. This is not the first time this happens in the church, and this is not the only time that this happens within the church. That although it takes different forms and different shapes, this is a steady wave that is constantly plaguing the church. This is something that is constantly hitting and trying to knock the church down. The second, uh, it really, the way we see this played out throughout is, is in the more broad understanding of what's called legalism. You've probably heard the term legalism. It's oftentimes misunderstood to mean just people that want to do the right thing. It's not bad to want to do the right thing. What legalism is, is any attempt to justify ourselves, save ourselves, earn God's grace, or partner in God's saving work through moral deed or religious action. It, once again, it's any attempt to justify ourselves, save ourselves, earn God's grace, or partner in God's saving work through moral deed or religious action. Legalism is not so much doing the right thing, it's doing the right thing so that we can be saved. And that's dangerous because there's a lot of right things that we as Christians can do. There's a lot of good things that we do that happen throughout the history of the church and through now that very quickly can become legalism. We can turn just about anything into legalism because the moment, the motivation behind what we're doing becomes to justify ourselves before God, to make ourselves worthy, to partner with God in the work of salvation or anything like that, that good thing becomes bad. That good thing becomes legalism. And this is what we see. Now more formally, we see this as a specific heresy called Pelagianism. Pelagius was, many people think he was a British monk. Um, it was in the 5th century uh, of the church. And he basically came down, he came to Rome and found Rome. A lot of the church leadership in Rome were corrupt, which was true at the time. He came and, and he said there needs to be kind of a moral revival amongst the church of Rome. And it honestly probably was true. There probably did need to be a moral revival. But ultimately what he began to proclaim becomes one of the main controversies of the fifth century within the church. And I want to lay out the three main tenets of Pelagianism because we might find them to be familiar. The first is that people are, people are born morally neutral or basically good. That is what he preached, which ultimately denies original sin. Second is that salvation is a moral choice. That God's grace is a partnership with our moral choice. That we can either morally choose to follow God and do what he says and that thus saving ourselves or we cannot choose to do that. Thus denying God's grace. And that ultimately moral perfection is possible in this life. Denying the renewal that happens in the resurrection. So that's what Pelagianism is. And I'm not saying this to bore us. I'm saying this because it's important that we understand this heresy. First off, usually false beliefs about God are coupled with other false beliefs about God. They rarely ever happen all just in kind of isolated from one another. We see this, and, and, and what's really rooted, in, and I had a professor in seminary who would constantly say, the second most important belief we have is our view of man. He says, you know, our theology and who we understand God is, is by far the most important, but our second is how we understand who man is. 
What he misinterprets is the proper biblical view of mankind. That, we deni- that he denies original sin and thus put, puts us in a position that we can save ourselves. And that's Pelagianism. And the reason I bring that up is because this is this thing that once again keeps coming up over and over and over again in the life of the church. We see this now. We see this in just, quite frankly, the gospel of legalism. That very often times, the common held belief, or often even the preached belief, is that we save ourselves through our works. Whether that's through partnering with God in grace, or just straight up saving ourselves. Well, that is a common thing we see. This is, not, this is not something of the past, but this is something that happens now. We see this in, uh, I call it the gospel of self-actualization. The kind of what happens is that we, we find ourselves. And if you don't believe that this isn't being proclaimed now, just watch any Disney movie or kids movie that's been made in the last 20 or 30 years. Or really any movie for that matter. That being the hero of our own story is kind of the great gospel of this age. That we are the heroes of our own story. We see this over and over and over again. This gospel of self-actualization that we can ultimately save ourselves. See this in something uh, that a number of authors have called moralistic therapeutic deism. Let me break down what that means. Moralistic means basically just we're supposed to be good. We're supposed to do the right thing. Therapeutic, that the point of all of this is to make us feel better about ourselves. And that deism, that we kind of believe in God, yes, it's the work of God, but we don't get into specifics because, let's face it, there's aspects of Jesus that might be a little offensive. And so we ended up presenting a watered-down gospel that is moralistic, therapeutic deism. This is another way that this manifests now. This manifests by whenever we add any other identity, any other identity to being a Christian whether it be political, social, philosophical, anything that we add to being a Christian once again falls into this heresy. You know, in academia, there's there's a a big conversation kind of against the rise of postmodernism within the Christian faith. That a lot of people are are talking about the negative aspects of postmodernism, which it's fine that there's that conversation. What ends up happening is that for people to say that you are a Christian, you must refu- like go against postmodernism and then become basically a modernist. With once again, is adding to what it means to be a Christian. We're adding that by saying you must be some philosophical viewpoint in order to be saved, which once again falls into this. There's this idea that we have to clean ourselves off before we take a shower, which should sound ridiculous that we would kind of wipe ourselves off, dust ourselves off before jumping into a shower. But there's so oftentimes this feeling that before we could even merit God's grace or be worthy of his goodness, that we have to not get perfect, not even get great, but get a little bit better. That we have to be a little bit better, that we have to deal with this thing or that thing before we can really fully accept God's grace. There's this constant feeling of that. I hear that all the time. I see that all the time in my own life. And all of it, goes against this reality. All of it is part of the same wave of self-justification that is constantly hitting against us. 
we need to remember that God came for the sinner. He didn't come for the well, he came for the sick. He came for the unrighteous, not the righteous. So whenever we make any attempt to save ourselves or to add into this thing and say, you need to do this before you can be saved, in any way, shape, or form, in any uh, kind of, whether it be philosophical, political, moral, social, anything, anything we add to the sake of becoming a Christian is wrong. It is not biblical. It's important that we understand this because this is, and the reason why I wanted us to kind of see it in history is because I think it's important that we understand that this is a stated heresy. I think that the church sometimes, and we sometimes, can overuse the word heresy. That it should mean a little bit more than it oftentimes does. This is not one of those cases. This is the very appropriate word for what we're talking about. That this goes against Orthodox Christian teaching. This goes against the historical Christian teaching of the church. This goes against the biblical teachings of the church. This goes against Christ's teaching of what it means to be saved. And because of that, I think one of the dangers that we find is that we don't recognize the danger of these beliefs. Why I wanted to see this, why, what we need to wrestle with is the danger of this type of belief is that the moment we begin to believe that we can in any way, shape, or form partner with God in the saving work that He does, we, will, we are just ready to fall. We are ready to get knocked over. But this is serious if we don't recognize the dangers of these beliefs. And lastly, that what we see, the way this always works is that it always starts with a partnership. It's rarely ever that we just say, hey, I'm going to save myself. Say, I know that Jesus saves me, but I really need to do this as well to make sure that I'm saved. Or I really need to believe this, or, or, you, or we'll put it on other people and say, you really need to have this going on before you can truly be saved. And it always starts with partnership, but historically what we've always seen, it always just ends in self-justification. It always just ends with denying the grace of God. We need to take this seriously, I guess, is what I'm saying. We need to take it seriously that our very core wants to justify ourselves. We want to be the hero of our own story. We want to be partners with Christ in the salvation of ourselves and in the salvation of the world. This is the natural response, which, on the one hand, when you hear of the grace of God, the fact that God actually did all of this stuff for us on our behalf, and that we can receive forgiveness, we can receive his mercy just through faith, that should be good news and that should seem like a no-brainer, but it is so hard for us to do in practice. It is so hard for us to accept grace in practice because our natural predisposition is to want to be at least part of the hero of our story. But once again, what we see here and what we're going to see in the Jerusalem Council is that this is refuted as heresy. This is refuted as something that goes contrary to the teachings of Christ and the work of the Spirit. So we see that we can't save ourselves, but that doesn't keep us from trying. So the response is that Jesus saves us. So stop trying. Jesus saves us, so let's stop trying to save ourselves. What happens as a result, ultimately, is everybody is gathered in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, 
is still the, the hub of the church where the majority of the apostles are and, and where the leadership would gather at this time in the book of Acts. And so they were all gathered together to do that. And in verse 7, it picks up. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinguish between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? I want to point out that is an incredibly profound statement that Peter makes there. What he is recognizing is that this has never worked, that this attempt to justify themselves through circumcision has never worked. It was something that they couldn't do. So he's asking the question, why would we put that on somebody else when we ourselves couldn't do it? We ourselves can justify ourselves through the law. He says that, and in verse 11, he says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will build its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So first, Peter stands up. This is after all of the debate and basically says, I've seen the work that God has done in the Gentiles. We have been saved by grace. We have not been saved through the works of the law. We have not been saved through the circumcision. So why would we ever put that on them? It's by grace that we were saved, and it's by grace that the Gentiles were saved, and it needs to stay that way. And then James, and this is uh, the half-brother of Jesus, by the way. There was another James that was um, martyred earlier, and that's James, the brother of John. So this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who writes the book of James, who in many ways, people kind of say is, is, is probably the biggest proponent of the need for righteousness within the faith. He writes the most articulate argument for that in the book of James. This is the same guy who ultimately comes to the same conclusion, that there is nothing that should be added to the grace of God. That there is no circumcision, there is no other things that should be added to God's grace. And this is the ultimate conclusion of the Jerusalem Council, that it is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Sorry, I confuse the prepositions in my head sometimes. So we see this then, and then we see this throughout history. Like I said, there there was within uh, the first 
uh, fifth, uh, during the 5th century when Pelagius arose with this um, controversial doctrine that he puts forth, and a lot of people end up following him. And the person who ends up fighting against this and articulates one of the greatest arguments against the rise of legalism and Pelagianism and all that stuff is a man named Augustine, who many of you guys have probably heard of. Augustine was at this time, and he is fighting against this. He, he writes extensively as to why Pelagianism ultimately goes against the heart of God's grace. We see this happen over and over and over again. We see this happen with Luther. This was Luther, one of Luther's main points. That at the time, the medieval Catholic Church had basically come to a point where they had added to the grace of God. That it was necessary for you to maintain the sacraments. They basically replaced circumcision with the sacraments. And this was one of Luther and many of the reformers' ultimate conclusion is that by doing that, they have negated the grace of God. That was, although there was many times before that where this wave had come through, that was the second time we see this major wave come through the faith. To the point where even at the Council of Trent, which is the Catholic Reformation, this is once again repudiated as a heresy. We see this once again rising within the American church. Now, I'm going to say somebody who some of you probably do not know, a guy named Charles Finney, but you have experienced the effects of him. He was an American revivalist and preacher, an incredible preacher um, during uh, the middle of the 19th century. And once again, he basically was putting forth an American spin on Pelagianism, on legalism, on this attempt that we we were born okay, that we are partnering with God in the work of salvation and that ultimately we can become morally perfect. He puts forth this, this thing and that has plagued it. And really, part of the roots of evangelicalism and parts of the roots of kind of the reformed movement within evangelicalism, which, by the way, we are a part of, has its roots in combating some of the work of Charles Finney and other theologians that kind of merged together this American ideal of manifest destiny in with the establishment of the gospel. And I say this not because I think that it's important that we see that this is big, that this is constantly happening, and that this is happening still. Because the way we fight against this is by being gospel-centered as a church. This is the reason why we as a church are consistently talking about the good news of Jesus, that we are rooting our identity in the fact that Jesus has saved us. Every week we come and we recognize God's holiness. We recognize that we are sinners and that we recognize that Jesus is the one who is saving his church. We are proclaiming the good news through the scriptures that it is a work of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is something that we are consistently doing because we know that the moment we don't, the waves are strong. I think if you think about it, and I was talking to somebody in between service last week, or right just before this, I think we would be shocked how oftentimes we are being hit by the wave of self-actualization in our lives. It is shocking how consistent this message is in this world. Sometimes more consistent than what is happening within the church of this gospel of saving ourselves. And so it's important that we as a church now are rooting ourselves in this reality, that we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
And that's why we do what we do as a church. That's why when we gather here, we are saying this over and over and over again. And it's not because we want to be redundant. It's because we know that if we're not, we will fall. If we don't keep the steady footing of this truth, of God's grace, that we will fall to the wave. We do this over and over again. And this has been the work of the Holy Spirit in the church over time through all of these various things. The way the Jerusalem Council ends by them ultimately saying, this is a big enough problem, this has caused enough of an issue within these churches that we need to formally send a letter. So they craft a letter basically saying all of this stuff, that it is not necessary to be circumcised or to follow the law of Moses to be saved. They craft this letter, and this is, it's important that we know that this isn't just, and, and why it happens this way is they wanted to make it clear that this isn't just Paul saying this. This isn't just Paul saying this against these other people, but this is the entirety of the apostles and elders, the leaders of the church, who have in prayer sought the Holy Spirit, looked at the teachings of Christ, looked at even the teachings of Moses, and said this is the conclusion that we have to come to, and this is the conclusion that the church stands on. And they send this out to all the churches. But in it, they address something that I think is necessary and kind of the flip side of this. And that's, because it's a question that, that has to come up when we're talking about the grace of God. Because yes, it is true that there is absolutely nothing we can do to merit the grace of God. And that any attempt to partner with God is legalism and is wrong. However, oftentimes, the question then is, where do good works fit then? Where can we have the conversation about righteousness? Where can we have the conversation about doing the right things and living out in kind of this context of morality? If it doesn't fit there, then where does it fit? And they ultimately include this in their letter, and that's that righteousness follows salvation, not the other way around. This is kind of the third big thing that we see from the Jerusalem Council, that righteousness follows salvation, not the other way around. Righteousness is the result of God's saving work, not a predecessor to it, or not a means of God's saving work, but that righteousness follows it. It is a response to it. And it is, he would say, a necessary response to it. It is expected that God's people, having been saved by God's grace, would act like God's people. Paul puts it very strongly. James puts it very strongly. He writes, James, in the book of James, he writes in James 2.18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This is an important part of this conversation, and he includes it here in 15, 28, and 29. So at the end of their letter, he says, For it has seen good to the Holy Spirit, and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And once again, he is saying this as a result of salvation. He is not saying this to do this as a means of salvation. But he is saying that yes, it is important that we set ourselves apart. And some of these moral issues might seem a little weird. What these were all referring to was ways that, that other people practiced worship. So what he's saying is don't practice worship the way they are doing it. 
Set yourself apart. It is important that you're set apart, but not as a means of salvation, as a result of salvation. And that's what they taught then. And this, once again, has been consistent throughout history. Every single one of those people that I mentioned, Augustine, Luther, on into Bonhoeffer, and other people, all have once consistently reaffirmed this reality. That yes, it is salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But righteousness is the result of salvation, of God's grace. That the only good and just response to being saved by God's grace is to respond by doing what he says. I would say if you want to know what a good core understanding of what it means to worship God, it's that. This is the overarching testimony of the scriptures, that worship means obedience, that we do what God says. And so it is important, righteousness is important. Ultimately, living out the law that God talks about here is important, but it's never meant to be a means of salvation. And this takes up a whole chapter in the book of Acts. This is a big deal. This was not a fleeting conversation they have. This is not some side note. This is something where they called people from hundreds of miles to make a treacherous journey back to Jerusalem to spend weeks in debate, seeking in prayer to talk about and to seek through because it is that important. This is one of the things that will knock our church down if we are not careful of it. And the way I want to kind of end this is just by challenging you in this reality. Coming back to kind of what I was teaching my kids is hopefully the same thing that we can walk away with. That's that we need to keep our feet on the steady ground. The waves are coming, but we need to keep our feet on the steady ground. One of the many ways that we can do that is by just consistently being here. And, and I hope, once again, you hear this in the context of worship, not as a means of justifying or anything like that. But by being here, what we're doing and why we gather regularly on Sunday is to remind ourselves of this truth. To go over and over and over again of w- the foundation we have in Christ and His grace. That is why we gather. That is why we do this. Why we sing songs like In Christ Alone and How Great Thou Art and the song Grace Alone. We remind ourselves of this truth. That is why every week you hear over and over again, whether it's spoken or whether it's just written, that God is holy, we are sinners, Jesus is saving his church, and Jesus is sending his church. That is why every single week we gather here to do that, because we need to remind ourselves that salvation is the work of God's grace, not the work of human merit. And so we do that weekly, So I want to challenge you guys to take this seriously. And this is not about brownie points. This is not about making ourselves feel any better about how this church is going. This is necessary for standing against the waves of false doctrine. It's consistently standing here and coming together and reminding ourselves of the steady footing we have in Christ. Second is that when this occurs, we head directly into it. That we name it, We recognize it, and we hit it head on. Because that's ultimately what happens in this. That's what I love about the Jerusalem church. There was incredible intentionality. They recognized this was a problem. They went through the hard work of debating this, and and, and it was probably heated. It was probably hard. It was probably hurtful on relationships. But ultimately, they come through it, and they hit it head on. 
so that we would hit it head on when it comes, not if it comes, but when it comes in our own lives and in the life of this church. And lastly, that we remember that the wave is constantly coming. Is that we take this seriously enough to know that God's grace is not the natural way, but it is the right way of understanding the world. That we can't save ourselves. That Jesus is the one who saves us, so we should stop trying. That we should understand our righteous works through the lens of worship and response, not through a means of justifying ourselves before God, because there's nothing that we can do to justify ourselves. We cannot be good enough. And it is by God's grace that we are brought into this. And that's ultimately what I hope we do, is that we stand steady on the great and good news of God's grace, that we hit adversity head on, that we hit this doctrine and heresy, this constant flood head on, and that ultimately we remember that this wave is constantly coming. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, God, that you are the one who saves. Lord, that this isn't up to us, that this isn't something that we have done Lord, this isn't something that we have accomplished. Lord, that this is something that you have done and that you have accomplished. Lord, I pray that as we respond now, Lord, as we remember your goodness through communion and through singing, God, Lord, I pray that you would just identify areas in our life where we are trying to save ourselves, where we are trying to be the hero of this story. God, convict us of those and bring us back to your grace, Lord. For those of us in here who maybe have never come and accepted your grace, maybe have never received that free gift that you give, Lord, I pray that we would stop trying to make ourselves good enough and deserving enough of you, but remember that there is nothing that we can do to do that, which is why you gave us this gift. Lord, we thank you for the work that you've done. Lord, and we pray this in your name. Amen.